As we look at the last chapter in the book of Hebrews, the writer closes out the letter to these Jewish believers with an exhortations or encouragements and how to live by faith. That's the whole book of Hebrews is about living by faith. If you remember in chapter 11, we saw many wonderful examples in chapter 11 of that faith. In chapter 12, we saw the writer give many encouragements, many exhortations about of faith. And now in chapter 13, he is presenting the evidence of faith. It kind of closing out the letter as any writer wants to encourage us how we should be living faith and what the evidence of someone who is living by faith, what that should look like. And so the writer gives many of those. We will see here in just these first eight verses, seven characteristics of a believer who is living by faith. And we will see those just here in these, uh, this morning. But these evidence of faith should appear in our lives if we really are walking by faith and not by sight. We would be doers of the word and not just hearers. We will see that evidence of someone who really knows the word but hears it well. But the question is, do they apply it to their life and actually live that life of faith? Those are two different things. Very two different things. Many people have gone to church their whole lives and heard the same thing over and over and over, but has not changed their life. That has not caused them to be doers of the word, actually live out their life by faith. They still live by sight. And those are, again, we will see how the writer wants to kind of close out this letter to these believing Jewish believers who were struggling with their faith. They were looking to go back to religious religiosity, back to the law, to live by the, sac- the sacrifices and live by the kosher laws and all the do's and don'ts and all the things that happen versus living by, uh, by grace of, that we see in the New Testament by trusting their life to Jesus Christ and him and him alone and his finished work on the cross. The writer touches on these seven characteristics, and we will see here in chapter 13 of Hebrews how enjoying a spiritual fellowship with him and with one another is so important in a Christian life. The very first characteristic we will see here in verse 1 of chapter 3 is let brotherly love continue. This very first characteristic that the writer talks about is a love should flow among the saints. If you are one who says, I know Jesus, yes, I love Jesus, yes, I'm a Christian, then it should be evident in your life without a question. Someone just watching passively should see a love that is flowing from you in and among the saints as you, do, as you fellowship with your brothers and sisters. You desire to be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. You can't think of anything other than throughout the week. I just need to be around my brothers and sisters in the faith. I need that encouragement this time. This has been a very struggling week. I'm having some challenges here here mentally or spiritually or physically or whatever. You cannot wait to be around brothers and sisters. It's the fellowship that encourages us to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. When you and I get a point where we say, I don't really take your like, fellowship is not a big deal to me. Watch out. Watch out. Because you're not in the right space because we know the evidence of a characteristic of a godly man or a woman is one who wants to show and receive and demonstrate out that love that flows from you or from them to one another in the fellowship. And he starts here by letting brotherly love continue, which means the writer of the Hebrews is using this ancient Greek word here, Philadelphia. If you, as you know, in the scriptures, there's four loves we see in the ancient Greek. We have the first one that's it's eros, which is an erotic love or sexual love that God t- talks about in the scriptures. The second love that we see in the scripture is one of storge, which is a family love. One that is a love between, uh, that, that love between a parent and a child, between family members. That's a storge type love. We see that in the scripture. 
We also see agape, which is the most powerful of the love that we see in the New Testament and is often used to describe God's love for you as a child of God, a love towards you and I. It is a love that loves without changing. It doesn't change. It's not a love that is a self-giving or uh, given to, un, uh, to, oneself, uh, to oneself. It is one is given out it, even to those who are unlovable. You are able to love them. It's an agape. Love. It's an unconditional love that you can demonstrate that we see in the scripture. It's a love that loves even if you're rejected. If that love is rejected, you still love unconditionally that agape love. Agape love gives, not takes. Agape love loves because it wants to love, it gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. Agape love isn't about feelings. It is about decisions. But here, this love, it's in, this, in the ancient Greek, is Philadelphia or uh, philia, which is, is what is described here in verse 1. And it's a Greek word spoken of brotherly friendship or affection. It is a love of deep friendship and partnership. This is the love that the writer is talking about. And he says here that that brotherly love that they had among themselves as believers continue. Which means they had it. They were growing, they were maturing, they were walking with Christ. And out of that relationship with Christ bears one's love a brotherly or a, a friendship, a deep friendship that will take place between brothers and sisters in the faith. That is a characteristic of a godly person. Because they desire to be in that type of deep relationships. We must be very careful. We find ourselves growing cold to that love where you say, I can hang around people, but don't talk with me. Don't mess, don't, 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 I don't bother me. I come in, I come out, I do what I want, I get what I want to get out of it, but don't talk, I, don't need fellow, I don't need fellowship and I don't need relationships. Be very careful. That is not of a godly character. It's not. But we must continue, which means you could have that deep relationships, that deep partnerships between two brothers or between two sisters. But if you're not careful, if you walk away from the things of God's truth, you're walking away and you get caught up into the cares of the world and things, you will find one of these characteristics is the love that you have for that brother and sister will grow cold. That's why the writer says, oh, please continue. Brotherly love must continue. It's the basis of fellowship is brotherly love. That is the basis of our, our fellowship is the love among us as brothers and sisters. As Christians, there's this Hebrew people no doubt have been rejected by their families. These believers who now follow Jesus and not the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs, they're going to be rejected by their families and friends, and they're going to feel very alone, very isolated, because all their friends have abandoned them now. They're, they've lost jobs because of their faith in Jesus. They've lost, they're no longer invited to the family parties or the family gatherings because they're not, they're rejected because of that. That is why in this relationship between brothers and sisters was so important to have fellowship because that brotherly, that deep fellowship is what's stronger than your own blood family. Oh, I know that's challenging for many of you. What do you mean? How could someone I don't know have a deeper relationship with them than my own blood brother? I'm a testimony of that. I, I am a testimony, and many of you have a testimony of how there's brothers or sisters in your life that is so deep and so encouraging and fulfilling. It, it fills you up every time when you're around each other. Just, there's a, just a filling, a fresh filling, and you're just so refreshed when you get around that sister, around that brother. But when you get around your family, it drains you like no other. Why? Because it's, it is a storge love, which is good, it's right, it's natural, family love. You're a family, you're my brothers, yes, I'll tolerate you. <laughs> my big brothers, I'll tolerate you. No, this is recorded, so I have to be very careful. 
I do, I do love my brothers. They've come a long way. Because I didn't compromise. I did not substitute what God was doing in my life and the brothership and the love of the brothers, the, the Philadelphia, the, Phil, the Phil, Philia. That I understood in the scripture to be more important in my walk with Jesus than Storge. I do pray for their salvation. I do pray for the fact that they've come. And I do believe they have moved in tremendous direct, a positive direction. But the deepest kind of fellowship is not based on race. It is not based on family relationships. It is based on the spiritual life we have together in Christ. That is what produces the way of love in one's life. Our commonality of our love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, is what binds us beyond what we can even understand. And I want to challenge you, if you've been a Christian and you're not, you're not understanding, you're not gripping this, this bond, this, this undescribable bond of love between two brothers and sisters, then I want to encourage you to keep showing up regardless of how you feel and continue to draw closer to Christ. Because as you do, the fruit that will bear from your life will produce this love between two brothers. Or two sisters. It's a, a church fellowship based on any other than the love of Christ and the love for one another simply will not last. That fellowship will not last. Oh, you can have a well oiled machine just producing those media blitz and all kinds of things to try to drum up and latest gimmicks to keep people coming and keep giving. But it will not last. Only the bond in Christ will actually, a fellowship will last and grow. And we're a testimony here of that. Now, in Romans Chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. So one of the things that you would do, you find yourself, you go first. You can have that. I don't need that. You can have it. There's only one left. You have it. You can have the best parking spot. You can have the best pew. You can have the, you can have the, you know, go get your coffee first. You know, whatever it is, these small acts of just, you just don't put yourself first. You, you, you put your brother first or your sister first. It's not about what you can get. It's what, how can I help them for them to have and receive? It's a mindset that is a love that is produced when you're so focused upon Christ and so thankfulness of the fact that he saved you. That even the fact that even have you part of a fellowship is a blessing. And many people took that for granted until the, when they people with the government and everyone else tried to shut us down and say, you can't fellowship. That was completely going against the word of God. And look at how it caused such a rippling of problems within the church because we listened temporarily here. Very temporarily. We understood very quickly the fellowship between brothers and sisters was absolutely paramount. And you cannot do it separated, isolated in your own home. It will cause you to go squirrely. This brotherly love will grow to an agape love for others. We see that in 2 Peter 1.7. As you grow and mature, it will move from this, 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 this deep fellowship, this part, it will turn into agape where you have this unconditional love for other people. That's where we want to be. Understand, we have a spiritual enemy, though, that works daily, to stop brotherly love. 
It, the enemy constantly is looking to stop brotherly love and will sow discourse with anyone. He will try to use anyone possibly within a fellowship to sow discourse, murmuring and complaining, whatever it may be, to try to tear down the body instead of edifying and lifting up the body. And that's why we all have responsibilities when in the fellowship we never look to dis sow discourse or sow disunity or murmur or complain and those things. And I am so blessed because we don't have those things here. Because anyone who does come here and that is what they do, that's their nature, that's what they focus on, they will never last because, because through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, you can't handle the truth. You eventually just disappear. But if you're looking what God's word says and you're looking for that deep relationships of fellowship, keep showing up regardless of how you feel. And watch God do a work in your life where you will find and experience deep fellowships and relationships and love that you've never experienced in your whole life. I understand. Go to college, you develop really great, deep relationships because you go through the war together, right? And it bonds. We, if you've been in the military, and I've been in the military, you develop very, very deep relationships going to the war. But most of the time, they do not last because it's not based on Christ. I understand that. I've been there, done that, of all those relationships. But I have people in my life from the day when I got, uh, that I got saved, those relationships are still in my life. And every time we get together, it's like we never parted, even it's been years, because they're on one coast, the other coast. They never change my relationship, my love for them. Why? Because there's a bond. So the way of love in the very first characteristics is among the saints. There should be a characteristics that you desire and the love of the fellowship with one another. In verse 2, we see where there is true Christian love, there will be also be hospitality. That's the second thing. Love shows itself to strangers. We see in verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Let me bring some clarity here in this verse, because some people use this verse, I don't think accurately sometimes. And that is, that is not saying as a Christian, you're supposed to, as you're driving down the road, you see a hitchhiker, that you have to pick up a hitchhiker every time, because you might be entertaining an angel. Now, that doesn't say it can't be. I'm just saying, what this writer's saying here is, do not forget to entertain strangers within the fellowship as they're gathering together. Brand new people who are walking into the fellowship. There should be never a time when someone not walk into this place that you have not met or been greeted or shown love in some form or fashion because all of our hearts who have been coming here want to show you love, want to know who you are, wants to iterate. The question is, do you want it? <laughs> and so that's the question. And you, we give you space because there's, you know, God gives us grace and space. We give you space because we want to let you know we're here to answer any questions or help. Why? Because we do not forget to entertain. The word here in the Greek word entertain is hospitality. It's the same word. And in hospitality is an important virtue and often it is commanded of Christians and leaders to be hospitable. A pastor has to have that hospitability, that, that ability to work with people. We see that in Titus chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It's one of the qualifications. They have to desire to be and want to serve other people in that capacity. If they're not, they're not going to be pastors. They won't be leaders. But as Christians, we see it in Romans 12, verses 10 through 13, 1 Timothy 3, 2, 1 Peter 4, 9. These scriptures talk about us as Christians desiring to be hospitable to those who come into the fellowship. Now, in the ancient world, remember, they had motels or inns. But those were very immoral places. Those were not safe places for Christians. And once they found out that you were a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and not a Jew, you weren't going to get a room. 
But they were very immoral places. So it was important to traveling Christians to find open homes from other Christians. That they were able to take them in and provide for them as they're traveling through the country. This was simply a practical way to let brotherly love continue within the fellowship. It's not just at the building that you could show up together. Because remember, their churches were in the homes. And so they went from home to home, place to place. And when people came to visit, they came in, they sat down, they heard the word, they had a fellowship, broke bread, they prayed together, they laughed together, they talked about their life and stories. And all of a sudden says, do you have a place where you're going to be staying tonight? No, we haven't found a place yet. Well, why don't you stay right here? We always have a place, we have some bread. And we'll brotherly love shown to those who were traveling. This important ministry is the early church. It was so substantial because many of the believers, once they turned their life to Jesus, families kicked them out. They lost jobs. And the body of Christ had to help them through those difficult times to make sure they're fed in a place, safe place for them and their family. Now there's also, we know in 3 John, verses 5 through 8, that there were traveling ministers who needed places to stay. Paul, Peter, all the disciples, they had to have places to go as they were sharing the gospel and, and starting churches up. They were taken care of by their brothers, their sisters, to provide for them to be able to do that work that God called them to do. And because of the free offer of hospitality brought many times challenges within the body. Why? Because not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. They could be a wolf. And so what many times be greedy people who are really not Christians, but they figured out Look at what those Christians are, very nice people. They'll really, we'll, we'll just call them and just tell them some sad story and they'll just feel really felt obligated because they're supposed to show love and they'll, they'll give us money. Not here. <laughs> you call, and you're, 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 you, know, you have a challenge, we'll ask a few more questions before we just freely give any money out. We'll go pay your electric bill to keep it on if that's what we need to do because you're a brother and sister. Or do other things we do, but... As they learned here in the early church, they, the, the, the leaders started had to teach the people that, uh, to watch out for people just because they're masquerading as Christians. And they would be leeching off the generosity of the people, of God's people. And as time went on, they had to teach the people to dis, use discernment and, and understand what, what, we, what the boundaries are in regards to how you would uh, best serve in hospitality. Many poor saints could not afford to stay in an inn, yes. But since they are in the fellowship, there's a, there's a security in the fellowship. Because as there's needs and as there is unexpected challenges financially, economically, things that they were experiencing... The body of Christ is able to meet those. God puts on people's hearts how to meet the needs of people that are, are, are among the, of the fellowship. That's why I tell people, you know, if you, if you stay plugged in, stay connected, stay in the fellowship on a regular basis, you'll be amazed how God will use a brother and sister in your life to encourage you actually help you to accomplish something, fill in, oh, I've, I've been down this road, let me tell you who you need to call and, and how you can get some help from that. Or, oh, your washer and dryer broke? We just had two donated and told us whoever we knew, we have washer and dryers, We've, you need to go pick it up, we'll help you pick it up, we have a van, we'll pick it up, we'll even hook it up for you, we have guys who can actually show you how to hook it up. I mean, he goes on and on and on as examples by being within the fellowship, the most practical ways that God uses you in people's lives to help meet their needs. But you know what's interesting? 
this point that he makes on the strangers. Strangers who are Christians who are just coming into the fellowship, who just got saved and who are coming in and, and you don't know them. It's very important that each of us take the opportunity as the Lord leads us to make sure that we welcome them and be hospitable. Invite them to have a meal together. To spend time, as I say, have coffee time. You know, just sit down and just chat and get to know them to help them. Because you just never know if the Lord's putting on your heart to do it. To to just put yourself out there for those people who are strangers, who are brand new, who have no idea. You know how uncomfortable it is to walk into a church? Have you forgotten? You might be, I've been going to church my whole life, so you're like, I don't see the big deal to go into a church. Come on, really? I've been traveling my, ever for 25, almost 26 years after being saved, traveling, and every time I'm a new place in the country, I always look for a church, a Calvary Chapel, preferably, if not another church, and it's always this little edge, like, oh, what's it going to look like or feel like when I walk into that building? Hello? Being honest. And I'm pretty comfortable. It doesn't take me much to get in, because I understand. I can overcome the feelings, and I can just boldly go in. I don't, I don't care. But not everyone who's just checking out what this Christianity thing is and they're not saved. This is like the biggest thing they'll ever do. How many times have I told you of, of, of just coming alongside and someone brand new and find out they're just about to go kill themselves, but something told them to come to this church one more, t- this first time, one time, come in here. Just go, please. And they, for some reason, they show up. And it's because someone talked to them. They chose not to kill themselves, but give their life over to Jesus and be saved. Countless examples of those kinds of life-changing moments. How much better it is for that person to be able, or that couple, or that family who absolutely in chaos in the house it's chaos in the church in the car and they try to get through the door with some resemblance of a beautiful loving family so no one will know and then God brings people in and ministers to their heart to encourage them to keep going how important it is but the this writer says, you know, yes, you could have this wonderful moment where the person that God had brought at that moment, the one you're showing hospitality to, could be an actual angel. Ask Abraham. Ask Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. Ask Lot in Genesis 19 where they unwittingly entertained angels. They just knew there's something special that God brought them to their front door, to their house. And there was something special about them. But they didn't know at that time who they were actually entertaining. Jesus himself and angels? But even if it's not an angel... Remember, the word for angel means messenger. It could be someone who is is a guest that comes to the church or is invited to the home, and it turns out they're messenger of God's blessing upon you. You're just so blessed that they were part of that fellowship that you have in your home. That's what we're going to encourage. But the question is the second characteristic. The way of love shows hospitality to strangers in the fellowship. Someone you don't know yet in the fellowship. Is that a characteristic of yours? Have you grown and matured in your faith that you're willing to take the time with someone in the fellowship that says they're a Christian? That someone in you pour into their lives and it ends up being the fact that they actually pour into your life. I remember, I keep, throughout this week, and it's just popping back in my head, so I'm going to say it. It wasn't part of my initial thoughts. There was a young lady who was in Canada. Interesting ministry, one that is, um, was uh, 
trafficking children and trafficking women. And so that was her ministry in, in Canada as a, as a missionary. And she came across, because she's a U.S. citizen, she came across in the upper border, uh, cross, border crossing in Plattsburgh. But then they wouldn't let her back over. And she was stuck. As a mature Christian, what did she do? Curl up in her car and weep and cry and say, what am I going to do? Not this, not this godly woman. She immediately said, okay, I'm going to start calling my brothers and sisters and started calling. Plattsburgh, what, two, two and a half, three hours away? Nearest Calvary Chapel is where? Here. Calls. Happens to be. Happens to be. The day of women's ministry, she shows up, goes to the women's ministry. She's loved on by all the women. There's all the mothers, all the sisters are just started. And we took her in. We're not going out on the streets and find some place. Stay at our house. We have a guest room. That's why we have an extra room. Stay with us. Have dinner. We were so blessed to hear the ministry and what God was doing in and through her. And then so encouraging and all. And then we made some phone calls and ended up working out. She went back up and... And again, we then later on went up to Canada just so we can have a little time up there and actually go meet her because it was a blessing to meet this sister that we never intended. And that all happened in a very short period of time. It wasn't planned. It was not convenient. It turned out to be perfect because God said to show hospitality for those in the body. When we are hospitable to others, we know in the scriptures we really be welcome Jesus himself. We see that in Matthew 25, 35. Yes, perhaps angels, just like Abraham and Lot, but we understand that we're actually ministering to our Lord when we minister to others within the, in the fellowship. The third way. The third characteristic is the way of love cares about suffering. We see it here in verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them? Those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also? Very important verse here because if you are a growing mature Christian, you will have a way of love that you just want to show caring ways toward those who are suffering those who are in bondage those who are prisoners why because in these days you could because you're a follower of Jesus Christ you could be locked up in prison ask our brothers and sisters around the world getting locked up because of their faith look at our neighbor in Canada pastors being locked up because of their faith it's coming our way and the writer saying remember the prisoners as if you're chained with them, that you're because of the body, the body of Christ. When one is suffering, we all suffer. One who's in bondage, we're bond with them spiritually. We may not physically be bond in a bondage in the prisons, but we should be acting with a cares and a and a prayer life and a fasting and praying and reaching out and doing whatever we can as the Lord leads us to help those in bondage, those who are physically suffering, those who are physically limited. We have, as they say, we're one of the body here. It wasn't unusual for them to be arrested. It wasn't unusual for them to be physically beaten because of their faith. But we know in Matthew 25, verse 36 and verse 40, to minister to a Christian in prison as a Christian prisoner in the name of Christ is to minister to Christ Himself, the scripture says. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are all one body in Christ, and when one member suffers, they all suffer. So if someone in the, within the body of Christ is suffering adversely, we must go in to pray for God's will for that person's life. And how and who is willing to go and do what it takes to help to minister to that Christian believer in the prison. How can we minister? How can we encourage? How can we provide why? Because this, this third characteristic is a way of, of the way of love cares about those who in bonds and those hurting physically. 
Do you have this care for those when you hear someone in the body who is suffering physically? Do you immediately just realize, I need to be praying for that person, and you literally do pray? That you hear that they've gotten, because of their faith or because of a situation, they're now physically or locked up or whatever. Are you willing to do as the Lord leads you? Do you have that love? Or do you have those moments It's like, I'm sure he, he deserved it. He's in jail. He must have deserved it. Is that the first thing you think of? They're physically hurt? Oh, I wonder what they did. Screw that up. That attitude tells you you're not mature yet in your, in your faith. Just being gentle with you. But I'm going to be telling you, that means you're not maturing. You're not growing. That must be a characteristic that needs to develop in your life. An attitude of one of cares for those who suffer. We see the fourth one. We see there in verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So the fourth characteristic of love is that love cleaves to one's spouse. It is a, the way of love cleaves to the oneself, right? Because the home is the very first place where Christian love should be seen and demonstrated is in the family unit. A Christian home starts with a Christian marriage in the will of God. What does that mean? A Christian marriage starts with the will of God. That means it starts with loyalty and purity with, between two people. They're loyal to one another and they're, they keep it pure. That is how you start a good, solid Christian marriage in the will of God. Sex outside of marriage is sinful and destructive. And the Bible strictly condemns sex outside of the marriage committed commitment. It is clear. We studied even in Proverbs 6, verse uh, 32 on men's. We're doing through Proverbs uh, for men's on Thursday night. In Proverbs 6, 32, it talks about when you do sex outside of marriage, you're destroying your soul. You're destroying your soul. And the ramification and what I've seen over the years of people who have been destroying their soul because of sex outside of marriage is absolutely grieving to me. Sex within the marriage, though, is protective. It's protective bond that can be enriched and it will glorify God. And there's a protection that you cannot even explain because God's hands are all over that relationship between you, husband and wife. The Bible celebrates sexual love. It's one of the loves that God gives man and woman. But it's that Bible celebrates sexual love within the commitment of marriage. We see that in the Song of Solomon. It's in the commitment of marriage that sexual love is celebrated. It's not celebrated outside of the commitment of marriage. That's why he says marriage is honorable among all. The bed is undefiled. The bed is clean. It's pure. It's good. It's right. As they become, a man and woman becomes oneness. There is a goodness. Perhaps, but the challenge that, <laughs> that people find is that when they do it, outside of the will of God, and they're having sex outside of marriage, it becomes a absolutely destructive in their mind, in their hearts, about having a marriage that you can see as being undefiled. It, it, you, you're so tainted out of the fact the way you lived outside of marriage that when you finally do do it God's way inside the marriage, you have difficulties taking and leaving the past be the past, and keep it pure within the marriage that God has brought. And so you're always thinking, it's only a matter of time, it's going to get undefiled. No, it's not, if you do it God's way. 
If you let the past be the past, you've been forgiven, you've, you've repented, you've been, you've been forgiven and it's been forgotten. So you must move on and now do it God's way within the marriage for a sexual relationship to be pure and loyalty within just the two people. And you have to fight. You cannot allow anyone to disrupt that. Destroy that. And I understand you have a heavy guilt, you have heavy shame, and you have this sexual bondage and extramarital sex, but not in marital sex. You must give that guilt and the shame, if you're really repentant, if you really have turned it over to Jesus, there should not be the guilt and the shame and things that should bring you down. It might mess with you alone, but you can bring those thoughts under captivity. But you have to understand the enemy of your soul wants to do everything he can do to encourage you to have sex outside of marriage. That marriage bed. The enemy will try to do whatever he can to get you to do that. Because he knows it will destroy you. And he wants everything he can do in his power to once you're married to discourage sex within the marriage bed to destroy that relationship. The enemy doesn't mess, stop messing with you once you get married. He will try to stop that relationship, that intimacy between a man and a woman in marriage. Stop that so it will destroy the family, destroy that relationship. And that is guaranteed it will destroy a family. That's how Christians must recognize and understand the strategy of the enemy and not give it a foothold before or after marriage, it has to be talked about. The two of you must talk it through before you get married and continue while you're married. Though God allows great freedom in sexual expression within the marriage, you do have boundaries. That intimacy between a husband and wife must always remember it must be based on the needs of their spouse in love. If you have intimacy with your wife or your husband and it's all about you and selfishness and based on your need and it's not in love, you're out of bounds. You're going to destroy your marriage. Go back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2-5. through five. But then you start talking about fornication and adultery. Fornication is when there's a relationship where you're single and not married and you're having a sexual relationship. It is absolute sin. If you're married and you're having sex outside of that marriage, that's adultery. Absolute sin. And it was, we see right here the writer says God will judge. How is he going to judge? How does God judge someone who is in fornication before marriage and adultery after marriage? Well, we see in the scripture that sometimes they are judged in their own bodies. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Your bodies will actually judge you. You will experience things that's probably not healthy at all within your body. Diseases. It goes on and on and on. Mental. It goes on and on and on. Or it's certainly they can be judged in the final judgment in Revelation 21, verse 8, and verse 20, chapter 22, verse 15. In the final judgment, you're going to definitely be dealt with. Believers who commit these sins certainly may be forgiven, yes, by God. But they will lose rewards in heaven, and that's the judgment. You will lose rewards in heaven because of that sin. We see that in Ephesians 5.5. 5. Where do we see that as an example? Look at David's life. David was forgiven, but he suffered the consequences of his adultery for years to come. For years he suffered because of the, uh, the adultery uh, relationship with Bathsheba. But that, that didn't stop with just him. Because it not only affected him mentally, 
spiritually and his ability to lead, but it affected him through his own children. His own children became just like him. And they turned on him because of that sin that started. That's what started. It wasn't fully dealt with. So yes, you can be judged. But very sad these days, sexual sins are paraded around like it's entertainment. That every form of media, every form of electronic mode, you can have access to this type of sexual immorality that encourages fornication and encourages adultery. And people today pay thousands and millions of dollars into the system to keep cranking that out for what their viewing pleasures are. But the church must take a stand for the purity of a marriage bond. As a church, we cannot, as a church body, cannot tolerate those kinds of things. Even though society around us absolutely engulfs it. A characteristic, this fourth characteristic is the way of love cleaves to one's spouse. You must cleave to protect your family and your children and your children's children. It must be. It's, it's, you cannot compromise. Now, if we love God and others as we should, then we will have a right relationship with material things. We see this in verses 5 and 6. Look at this. Because this fifth one is love brings satisfaction or contentment, the writer says here. It says, let your conduct without, be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So this word covetousness is the opposite of contentment. Often covetousness or the love of money, that's what that is, and greed can dominate a person's life. It can, they can, you can even excuse your greed or excuse your covetousness by saying in the culture today, oh, he's very ambitious. Oh, he's so ambitious. He is so good at making money. So good about getting whatever he wants. And people celebrate this, this characteristics of ambitiousness in people's lives. When actuality, it's covetousness and greed in many times. Greed is what? Greed is the love for more of anything. But you got three. I just need more. Every millionaire, you ask, how much will you be satisfied when you have 10 million? No, one more million. There's always, I just I need one more. Are you satisfied now? No, no, I just need one more. Are you satisfied? No, no, I, 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 I got this under control. There's no problem. This is all good. I can handle it. You've been deceived. Because you can't handle it. With the economics and ecological problems in the world today, comfortable Christians may soon find themselves doing without luxuries that they would now consider necessities. But that should be a warning to all of us. That we must guard against the kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Luke chapter 12 verse 15. But notice here, the writer says, be content with such things as you have. You already have it. There should, needs to be a contentment that is so thankful that you actually have it. You know how many times people is like, oh, wow, you should be blessed. Oh, I, I, I don't even know. I, I don't realize I even have it. I was like, you don't realize what God has already provided for you. And the contentment of that. And not, not always thinking you need something bigger and better and faster and up to date and all these things that you can get caught up in. Contentment has much more to do with what you are on the inside rather than what you have on the outside. 
Contentment cannot come from a material things, for they can never satisfy the heart. Only God can satisfy our heart when it comes to material things. Paul, the Apostle Paul says it rightly in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. It says, not that I speak in regard to need. I'm not saying this because I have need. I'm writing this because I, I want to teach you something I've learned. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to, how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Who does he rely upon when he can't, doesn't even know where his next meal is going to be? Christ. He knows he's going to provide a meal because he knows his Savior. He knows his God. He says he's going to meet all my needs. But when he has more food than what he can deal with, what does he do? Thankful, he's thankful for God. And I know with that heart, you would turn around and say, who has need? Because I have abundancy. I know someone has need. God would have gave me abundancy. There must be someone around in the fellowship that I fellowship with that has need. And he knows he can be content. He is satisfied. He is at peace with God regardless if he has a lot or has very little. Because he doesn't live by material things. It's not his identity. It's not who it, de it doesn't define him based on how big his house is or how fast his car goes or how big of his account is or even if you are investing. We must, as a child of God, be thankful and grateful for whatever God provides and be content with what we have and allow the Spirit of God to just work that in our lives, to have that love that must be bare in our life. But he says here, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is the basis of why he's content. When you're sitting there and go, I, I, do we have any money to go to the grocery store to get anything? No, we don't have any money this week. He immediately puts his mind, or we should put our minds, as I will never, he will never leave me or forsake me. I may not have nothing in the cupboards, I have nothing in the refrigerator, but I know he's never going to leave me or forsake me. Somehow he's going to provide for us. And then guess what happens? Well, I shouldn't do that. That's, that's the old way. Where's the phone? Text. Hey, Corey, I know you and your wife, uh, we were just thinking about you, and the Lord put on our hearts to invite you over for dinner tonight. Would you like to come? Yes. <laughs> the Lord has provided brotherly love. Praise the Lord. The brotherly love continues. God has provided for us. We have a meal for this week at least one. Thank you, Jesus. Are you with me? That's living by faith, not by Sight. Why? Because you know he will never leave you or never forsake you. Do you believe that? Now it's interesting. As a child of God, nothing ought to make you unhappy when you realize that he will never leave you or never forsake you. You shouldn't be unhappy. Your God is always going to be with you. Always, regardless of how you feel, he's always going to be with you as a child of God. And when we have God, we have all that we need. The material things of life can and will decay and will be stolen maybe. But God will never leave us nor forsake us. This promise was made to Joshua when he succeeded in Moses in leading in Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1.5. And it was fulfilled to us in Jesus Christ. Matthew 28 verse 20, Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. That has been fulfilled in us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. There's a guarantee for us. 
And where's the affirmation? Verse 6. So we may boldly say what? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That comes out of Psalm 118 verse 6. He quotes 118 verse 6 of Psalms. And notice that the Lord is my helper. Do we have food? I we have no food. Who, okay, who can we call to help? Our Lord is our helper. Car broke down. We have no transportation. I can't get to work. Uh, the Lord is our helper. How is he going to come to our rescue to be able to move and get us to a point where we can do and meet the things we need to do? This is a messianic psalm right here, 118.6, and it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we may claim this promise of, for ourselves. That is a promise. In your Bibles, you should be in Psalm 118, verse 6, put a P beside it saying, that is a promise for you as a child of God. That is not a promise for a non-believer. So don't be sharing that with a non-believer, your, 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 your brother, and say, oh, the Lord is your helper. He's not saved. The only way he's going to save is if he surrenders his life and gets saved and be born again. Yes, that becomes the phone. But that is not that promise is for you and I as a Christian. He is our source of great peace to every Christian, is Jesus, to know that they were safe from the, the fear of man of what they're doing to them by losing their jobs and, and kicking them out of their houses and all this stuff because of their faith in Jesus. They did not have to fear God because the Lord is their helper. Men might take your goods, but God will meet your needs. Man may try to take everything from us, but God will still meet our needs. Our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now, pray for them, pray for them, pray for them, because we have at least 20 Calvary chapels somewhere in, Cal in Ukraine, and use the, those, our brothers and sisters to minister to other brothers and sisters, encourage them and provide for them and their needs, because you, you see what I see. And God will use the church over there, the church body to help each other. And they'll share the gospel with those who are in need. I hope there's a, just a wave of people getting saved through this. The spread of Christianity throughout the world there. Romans 8.31 gives us this. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's why we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. A real contentment comes only when we trust in God to meet our needs and to be our security. Our security must be in the Lord. Our needs must be based upon God's provision. But the question is, do we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and helper? Do you know him as your Lord and helper? That you can truly trust him for all your material needs. Number six. So after the way of love brings contentment, also we see that love is seen in submission. In verse seven, remember, those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So we see here that the writer says we are told to recognize and follow godly leadership in the body of Christ. To follow and to learn those who are literally, in this, in this sense, leadership shown that is legitimate by faithfully teaching the word of God. These are the men, these are the people you should be following. And their faith is played out and demonstrated in their lives. Their conduct lines up with the word of God. These, what we, they needed to be encouraged to continue to follow their leaders, not to go back to some organization or some religiosity of, of Judaism. Don't go follow the, 
the people who are these priests who say one thing but live completely different. Don't go over here and follow this organization when that organization is not following the word of God. You must follow those who are following and, and lives line up with the word of God. Those are the people he, the writer is trying to say. Those are the ones you need to be watching and following and learning from. The, the love is seen in the submission of wanting to learn from these leaders. Paul tells Timothy, young Timothy, as he's being raised up as a pastor, he says, take heed to yourself there, Timothy, and to the doctrine, the truths, the truths of God. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4.16. It is absolute tremendous responsibility, not only to study the word of God, to teach you for my own life, but then what the Lord has shown me and how to live according to the word of God, I am to pour that out into your lives or anyone who's willing to listen to help your life. The question is, is will you be submissive enough to learn the word of God? I just want you to learn how to, to, to learn, to understand the word of God and to get to a point where you can feed yourself and learn the word of God and get excited about throughout the entire week, not just learn it on a Sunday. But babies need to be fed. Hard for them to feed themselves. And then there's some who are all grown up. They think they're all smart and grown up. And they still need to be fed. But you know something? It's not talking about just following godly leaders. There also needs to be godly followers. And not only godly leaders and godly followers, there needs to be godly parenting. Because godly parents teach and pour into their kids the word of God. And as the kids learn from the parents the word of God, they're to be submissive to that teaching from the parents so that they can learn and grow in things that they don't understand according to the word of God. And as long as the parents are using the authority of the word of God to teach their kids, then they're not just sitting there saying, just do it. You need to say, you need to do this, and here's why, because the scripture says, if you don't, these are the consequences. If you do, this is where the blessings come from. You must, as parents, teach them the why. That's as, as pastors. I don't teach you the do's and don'ts. I teach you what the word of God says and the why you should be applying it to your life. Because if you don't want to understand the application piece, then it's not going to change your life. And as kids, they're not going to change if they don't understand the basis of the authority of what you're saying. And it's not just dad and mom who are being old-fashioned. And so I don't need to listen to them because they don't understand my generation. That's, that's just foolish talk. They, they're, just, they're, infants. they're infants. They need to understand that as a teenager, they don't know everything. And the reason why we, they don't know everything is not because as parents we tell them that. It's we tell them the Bible, God himself tells them that. So you're telling them why, where you're getting it from. This is not the old man speaking here. This is what God says. I'm just showing you in the scriptures. You need to now apply it. Are you with me? The way of love is seen in submission to godly leadership in your life. And lastly, verse, verse 8 of chapter 13. And this is so important that you understand this. Is that the love's source, where love comes from, is Jesus. Right here, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How long is forever? Forever, ever. The unchanging nature of who Jesus Christ is, God in the flesh. Many theologians will call it immutability. It's a fancy word. Of an unchanging nature. Jesus Christ could be, and his deity is unchanging. 
He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. And so when people say, oh, God in the past is different than the God today and it will be a God for they don't know the scripture. Just show them one simple verse, verse 8 of chapter 13 of Hebrews. Why do you follow Jesus? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I can trust everything about him. He's not wishy-washy. He's not going to change. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. He is my helper. He is there at the worst of times of my life, and he's there at the mountaintop experiences. He will always be with me, not without a shadow of a doubt. That's the measure for all Christian conduct. Especially in the teaching of the word, in the worship. We worship, we learn of Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The fact that love flows among the saints and shows itself to strangers cares about those who are suffering, cleaves to one's spouse, is satisfied in what God has provided, is willing to be humbled and submissive to godly direction from another. All of this is singularly presupposed on your relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the source of all love. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way of love is by Jesus and him alone. Amen.